All right. Amen. Am I live here? Yeah. Okay. Well, guys, I am really enjoying this book. Uh, I know we're just getting started, and I know some of you probably have, don't even have a copy yet, but I really encourage you to get it. I encourage you to read it. It's They're short, kind of very to-the-point chapters, but just rich. And uh, I want to pray one more time, and then we'll get started in taking a look at uh, tonight's two chapters. Father, we thank you for this time in worship. And God, I pray that you would speak to us now, Lord, as we consider this important topic of discipleship. God, we, we want to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would work in our hearts and lives to accomplish this very thing. Speak to us tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book, even in the introduction, I found some good fruit in there for us, and uh, just you may remember uh, some of it, but hopefully uh, it'll be fresh to you as well. Matthew 28, verse 18. This is the Great Commission. This is what Jesus said. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make what? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So Jesus, this great commission, sending out his disciples to make disciples. He didn't say go and make converts. Go, you know, uh, get people to believe. Go and make disciples. Now, believing is part of becoming a disciple, but being a disciple is more than just kind of coming to, to faith. It's, that's just really the beginning. Uh, the word disciple means learner or student. And the way Jesus used it, he meant a learner or a pupil who accepts the teaching of Christ, not only in belief, but also in lifestyle. Learning with the purpose of to obey what is learned. So it's not just learning, it's not just gaining knowledge, it's learning with the idea that I want to be transformed, I want to live this way. It's a lifestyle, it's following Christ, not only in word, but in deed. And uh, just a few quotes here. I, I really, like I said, I'm just enjoying this book. I, I like the way the author just phrases things. He says, it's one thing to master the biblical principles of discipleship, but quite another to transfer those principles into everyday life. And I can say amen, can't you? One thing to learn it, to study it, but boy, Lord, we need your help and grace to live it. There is no such thing as an easy and instant discipleship. There is no such thing as short-term discipleship. So becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ is going to take time, and it's not the kind of thing that you do for a while and then quit. It's the kind of thing that you commit to for the rest of your life to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's looking for men and women of quality for whom there is no turning back. Amen. That's our introduction to this topic of discipleship. Chapter 1. Uh, What we'll take a look at, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. Chapter 1 talks about the ideal disciple. The ideal disciple. And we're going to look at the Beatitudes, Jesus' conversation with his disciples there. And in Matthew chapter 5, famous passage of Scripture. And we'll work it through. Our author has broken up these Beatitudes into eight, uh, four passive and four active Uh, characteristics, but uh, let's take a look at the passage, uh, at least here uh, getting it started, 
and then we'll, we'll start working our way through each of the Beatitudes. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, and verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and we're going to get into the Beatitudes, but notice, even though there was a multitude around, it was his disciples that he was actually speaking to. His sermon would go out and no doubt would be overheard by those that had come and gathered, but Jesus was speaking these things into the heart of his disciples. So as we consider becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is Christ's one-on-one training and teaching of blessings as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So we'll take a look at these four uh, characteristics mentioned uh, in the... There's eight, but four are going to be uh, looked at as passive. Four will be active. The first thing we notice in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Spiritual inadequacy is how our author is defining blessed are the poor in spirit. Not poor in pocket, uh, but poor in spirit. This is not talking about financial concerns. This is talking about an attitude of the heart. And blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their weakness, those who recognize their bankruptcy, spiritually speaking, apart from God. There is a blessing to know that. There is actually the inverse of that, to be proud, to be thinking that you are self-righteous, to be thinking that you are altogether good spiritually, Uh, apart from God, is actually a curse upon your life. But those that are poor in spirit, the one who recognizes his spiritual bankruptcy and casts himself completely on the Lord and his infinite and limitless resources, this is where blessing is found. There is no room for spiritual pride as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Paul would say not to think more highly of oneself than one ought to think. There is something about recognizing our dependency upon God, our needing to abide in Him. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so he's teaching right here that there is a blessing in recognizing that you need God in your heart, in your life, in your spirit. So, uh, first characteristic, spiritual, uh, being poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Number four, the second thing that we notice, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Spiritual contrition, our author says. Now this is, um, this idea of mourning, of course it could be over a a trial or a difficulty. Uh, But the thought here that our author points out is this blessing those who mourn, a sense of mourning over the guilt and condition of our spiritual life. A mourning for sin. That sense in our heart of of being um, disappointed with our frailty and with our weakness. There's a blessing in being honest about that. There's a blessing in saying, you know, I, I wish that I could live, you know, completely free of sin, but I'm grieved in my heart at times when I see my own spiritual condition. Mourning over sin, mourning over failure, over our spiritual weakness, our slowness to our, our how slow we mature and grow in the things of Christ. Now, this is not a mourning unto discouragement and despair, but it's a mourning that is you know, touched by the shortcomings of our life. It's not like, oh, well, we're all just sinners. 
And we just kind of bump along like no big deal. So I lost my temper. Oh, we all do, you know, ha, ha, ha. No, there's a mourning, there's a grieving. When we grieve the Lord, we ourselves, our hearts are grieved. Uh, James chapter 4. In China, James, you know, James has always got a pretty hard word for us, but it's good. Uh, he's, he's rebuking certain believers, and he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So uh, James kind of having to shake the, the conscience awake of some brothers that he's writing to. Guys, don't, don't poo-poo off your sin. Don't pretend like it's no big deal. Repent. There needs to be a grieving, a mourning. And so some of that, clearly, what Jesus is, is getting at as well, uh, there is a, uh, a mourning over the, the sin and the shortcoming of our lives. I like what our author says here. No one attains full maturity without the experience of sorrow. Now, the blessing is not in the mourning itself, but it says, Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall what? Be comforted. The blessing is in the comfort that comes. The blessing is that the Lord meets us and ministers to us and forgives us. You know, some of the sweetest fellowship is in that experiencing of God's mercy. Haven't you had times when you've had to come to the Lord and you've had to repent and you've had to confess your sins? And that that voice of the Holy Spirit speaks into your heart, I forgive you. I forgive you. That grace, that mercy, knowing that He's faithful and just to forgive us, that brings a comfort, that brings a blessing. So this is an ongoing process in our journey as as we fall short. We allow the Holy Spirit to convict us, grieve us, and we get our heart right with God and we find comfort. Number three, blessed are... The meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This speaks to spiritual humility. Again, I quote from James, really very similar to the same passage we looked at, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is an ideal disciple. We're talking about someone who is meek and humble in heart. Not reaching to attain in your own strength and might, but trusting the Lord to bring His purpose. They shall inherit the earth. You know, a lot of this, again, is totally counterintuitive to the world. For the blessings of the world, it's get what you can, while you can, assert yourself, dominate, you know, uh, king of the hill type of a mindset. But for the disciples of Jesus Christ, it's, this is radical, different ideas. This is uh, kind of really shaking things up. And really speaking into the heart of his disciples. No, it's not through your own effort and strength and might, but it's through a humility and looking to God, and he will bring blessing. Number four, we find it in verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Spiritual aspiration. I liked this insight from our author here. Blessed are the unsatisfied. There's a hunger. There's a desire. There's a, there's a spiritual hunger. And God says, blessed are they that have this hunger because they're going to be filled. God's going to meet that hunger. And I, you know, I think that we should all carry about a certain feeling of 
not being completely satisfied. Not dissatisfied in the Lord or His perfect work of salvation. Not that we can you know, attain to any greater righteousness or right standing before God. But my heart longs for a fuller and more complete work of God in and through my life. And I hunger for that. And I don't ever want to lose that. I don't want to ever become complacent in my spiritual walk. I don't ever want to have the sense of having arrived and now I can coast spiritually. I want there to be a hunger. And if, sometimes when I sense that it's missing or lacking, I ask God to stir it up. Lord, stir up a hunger in my heart. I don't ever want to get so comfortable that I'm not after you and seeking you and, pre- and pressing in. Paul said, you know, not that I have attained, brethren, but... I'm pressing. I'm endeavoring to lay hold of that. You sense the, Paul, the, the Apostle Paul's hunger, desiring even a greater work of God in his life, forgetting what lies behind, pressing toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus would tell us to seek, to knock, to ask. There is in the disciple, uh, this disciple's heart a, an earnest pursuit. There's a hunger. I want, I, I want more of God. I haven't tasted the fullness of God's work in my life. Have you? I haven't come into all that I believe He wants to do in me and through me. And I I want that to be always there, that pressing. Not a dissatisfaction with Him. Not a frustration or some condemnation, feeling inadequate or anything like that. But just this hunger. Lord, I know that You want to do more. I know there's more to be done in my own heart. I need and desire even a greater revelation and... and, uh, and spiritual work in my life. They will be filled. God says there's a blessing for that heart. That heart that's hungry, God's going to fill it. Verse uh, 7. Now we're going to go into the uh, the four active uh, characteristics of the disciple. Those were passive. Those were just kind of conditions of the heart. These are more active uh, in definition. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So this is more than just an attitude of heart. This is actually doing something. This is being merciful. Uh, Mercy, by the way, is always undeserving. Again, just some interesting little nuggets that our author points out. That's true, isn't it? I'll be merciful as soon as he apologizes. I'll be merciful if you promise never to do that again. You know, there's, we always kind of want to. Well, mercy, if it gets earned, it's no longer mercy, right? Mercy is never deserved. Mercy is always giving what what was not earned. Mercy is all about being gracious, even though you've been wronged, even though uh, there's you know there's no real justification to offer that mercy. A willingness to be patient and long suffering with one another. Bible talks about not being easily offended. How we need to walk kind of just in a a merciful way with one another. Because you know what? We make mistakes. We're offensive to one another. We step on each other's toes. It happens in marriage. It happens in church. It happens in friendships. And for us to survive and and really grow, we're going to have to be long-suffering with one another. There has to be a certain willingness to endure with one another. And uh, as our author says, we are naturally geared more to criticism than to mercy. A lot easier to point and pick out one another's faults, criticize, than it is to be gracious and merciful, to let it go, to not be offended, to not uh, take into account when wronged. Mercy does not condone sin. It endeavors to repair its ravages. 
Mercy encourages the one who has fallen to begin again. And blessed are the merciful, those who show mercy. Why? Because they shall obtain mercy. Boy, I don't know about you, but I need the Lord's mercy in my life. I need mercy, and God calls me then to be merciful. That's the principle. Blessed are those that are willing to be merciful. They themselves will receive mercy. Second active characteristic we find in verse 8. Pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This pure in heart speaks of a sincerity. It speaks of a heart that is truly after God without any sense of hypocrisy. It is talking about a purity within. It's an inward work. It's not an outward show, but something genuine, something real going on in the heart. God looks where? To the heart. That's where he sees purity. That's where he sees integrity. That's where he sees sincerity. Not how you, how you act on the outside, but what's really going on within the heart. And there is a blessing for those that are pure in heart. And uh, the blessing is, as we see there in verse 8, they will see God. God sees them in their sincere heart, and, they, and he will reveal himself to those. Uh, third active characteristic We see in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, some interesting insights. And by the way, this is a, you know, we could spend, uh, we could do a whole series on just the Beatitudes, and probably I could, you know, do three or four sermons out of this easily. There's a lot here. We're kind of tracking through pretty quickly, and I'm trying to just kind of isolate some of the points that that our author pointed out, but they're good. But uh, we've got to move into the next chapter as well, so I'm just going to keep tracking. But this idea of being a peacemaker, conciliatory in spirit. Interesting thought. Not peacekeepers, not peace maintainers, but peacemakers. This, this communicates the idea that you're going into a situation where peace has already been lost. Peace has already been broken. There's already strife. There's already something going on. And now you have got to go in and make peace. Not just someone who keeps the peace, but someone who actually goes in and makes peace when it's necessary. You know, our relationships, families, marriages, friendships in the church, uh, there are times that we have division. There are times when, you know, we, we polarize in our positions. But there is a blessing for the one who will go and make the peace. And uh, peace is 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 better oftentimes, not always, but peace is often better than being right. Peace is better to have than winning the argument. Peace is something to to strive for, something that God wants in our lives and our homes. So blessed are the peacemakers. Final thought here for... uh, They shall be called sons of God. Final thing here in verse 10 through 12, the final characteristic of the disciple. In verse 10 it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This idea of being persecuted, the author calls this unswerving in loyalty. You cannot be moved from your commitment to Christ 
Persecution cannot scare you off. Uh, People talking bad against you cannot intimidate you away from your loyalty to being a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. You're willing to suffer for Christ if that's what following Him entails. And uh, there is great blessing and reward promised for those that will endure persecution for the sake of Christ. Our author points out three conditions for this blessing to actually uh, become a blessing. Uh, It must be, first of all, your suffering. It must be for righteousness' sake, not for some result of your own, uh, you know, belligerence in trying to witness or proclaiming to be a Christian. And now you've, you know, made some obnoxious kind of fool of yourself and and really, you know, and now you're getting persecuted. Uh, You know, there's some wisdom here, but that's not the blessing. But for, for righteousness' sake, when you stand for Christ and when you stand for righteousness, not walking into you know a McDonald's with a bullhorn and trying to witness and they escort you out. There's no there's no blessing in that. That that kind of persecution isn't the kind of blessing that God is talking about. No, but when you when you share the word, when you suffer for righteousness' sake, the second condition is that this evil speaking must ne- must have no basis in fact, right? You're not blessed if they're talking evil about you and it's true. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a blessing at all. It's only a blessing if it's false. It's a false accusation. Then there's a blessing. The uh, third uh, characteristic for blessing is that it must be for Christ and it must arise out of our loyalty to Him. If it's something that you're suffering truly because of your loyalty and devotion to Jesus Christ, you can know that there is great blessing in that. And so this defines something of the ideal disciple. Jesus teaching his disciples there, the Sermon on the Mount, sowing into their heart. And like I said, as he began to read these, these were, these were radical thoughts in his day. These were, these were going down into the heart of the matter. These weren't just the listing off of the Ten Commandments. This wasn't just following the, the letter of the law. Jesus was really speaking into the character of his disciples, speaking into the heart of the men. And so that's true for us. We need the Lord to speak into our hearts. This is the kind of disciples that we want to become. Chapter 2. Uh, so we looked at the ideal disciple, and chapter 2 speaks of the conditions of discipleship. And I'm just going to keep moving, guys, because I want us to get through it, and I want us to have some opportunity for discussion as well. Turn with me now to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we're going to talk about the the conditions of discipleship. Luke chapter 14, and I'm going to read verses 25 through 35. Follow with me if you would. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, 
does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, but if salt has lost its favor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'll tell you, Jesus is so so amazing. (laughs) He's got this great multitude, as we read in verse 25, great multitudes beginning to follow him. Boy, what an opportunity, Jesus, to launch your ministry big time. I mean, you've got the crowds, you've got, you've got a lot of momentum. You can really now take your ministry into the mega ministry category. This is your chance. All you've got to do is turn around and tell them a few things they want to hear. Remind them of the miracles that you've done and just kind of hype it up a little bit. You don't even have to hype it up much because everything's so awesome what you've been doing. Boy, Take advantage. You've got the crowd, you've got their ear, they're looking, and they're hanging on every word. And what does he do? He turns around and he begins to thin the crowd. He turns around and he begins to talk about the cost of discipleship. What a mistake. What a bad timing. What bad idea, Jesus. Oh, you blew it. You had your... Right? This is the way we think. And sometimes even in our... And our ideas for the kingdom and our ideas for church. And, you know, we, we, we want to craft it just so, so we can, uh, uh, you know, gain the masses. And our motives are good because, oh, we want to get as many into the kingdom as we can. But Jesus wasn't looking for numbers. Jesus was looking for disciples. Jesus was looking for hearts that would be truly His and belong to Him completely. I had a, there was a, I've shared this, maybe you've heard this before. There was a, a brother who came, he's an author. He came and he shared at one of our pastor's meetings, and he was, he's an older gentleman, been in ministry a long time. Uh, Dr. Sela is actually his name. And he's, he's traveled all over, you know, the United States and ministers and had, like I say, he's written a number of books that he's toured around and, and he said, you know, the one thing he'd noticed about the church in America, he said, it's miles and miles wide, but only a few inches deep. And what a testimony of some, you know, of what we see even in our own, you know, community. That there are many converts, so to speak. You know, the church is, is wide, but how deep is it? And Jesus was looking for depth here. Jesus was trying to call out and really thin out the crowd. And he wanted them to understand the cost, the conditions of discipleship. I like again what our author said here. He said, the appeal to self-interest inevitably draws the wrong kind of follower. You know, Pastor Chuck says it this way, when you strive to gain, 
you have to strive to maintain. And, you know, better to be honest, better to put the truth. Jesus was looking for men and women of quality, not just quantity. Those who will not turn back when the fighting grows fierce. Faith is more than just a profession. Faith is really believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And saving faith will produce discipleship characteristic and quality. And without that, obedience does not save, but it is the evidence of those who are saved. We talked about this, we talk about this a lot. You know, works do not save, but the saved demonstrate works because true, genuine disciples of Jesus Christ are going to demonstrate it in the way that they live their lives. It's more than just a, a mental thing, it's more than just a, a verbal acknowledgement, it's something of transformation in the heart. We'll take a few verses here and we'll look for three outstanding characteristics that Jesus puts forth here in this dialogue. And you'll notice that these are the conditions that he lays out before he, he says, if without it, you cannot be my disciple. The first one we find in verse 26. And we could, we could describe it as unrivaled love. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he what? cannot be my disciple. There can be no competition in the disciple's heart. Now, we know that Jesus, who would would also teach that we should honor our family, is not now turning around and teaching us to hate our family. He's using this as an exaggerated comparison. This is a contrast. What he's saying is, in comparison to your love and devotion to me, you cannot have any competing loyalties. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, He must be your first love. And he, he not only first in rank, there can be no competition for the love that you have for Christ. I remember uh, Mark Johnson, Pastor Mark Johnson of the Calvary Hollywood Ministry. When he was here and he was kind of sharing and talking with us on Sunday nights, he was talking about the cults. And he was talking specifically about the Mormon cult, and he's had opportunity to really get into the detail with with some Mormons and talk them through their theology, have them look at you know the the, the real issues and problems with their faith and their doctrine, show them from the Scripture, and he said, you know, what I found is that even those that would really engage, really make an honest effort to evaluate their faith, when it came down to it, and even after I was able to really kind of disprove their doctrine, they wouldn't come out because they were too connected to family and friends. It was their whole social life. It was their whole, you know... Life was wrapped up, even if they kind of came to the conclusion that maybe their doctrine was off. They didn't want to divorce themselves from the the social part of it, the, the family part of it, all of the connections of their life. And he said it was in that time, as he was sharing that, and he said it happened on several occasions, he, this, this verse came to mind. He realized what Jesus was saying. If you don't hate, if you can't, leave family, friends, familiarity to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, 
then you cannot become his disciple. You can't stay in a cult and become a disciple of Jesus Christ just because it's convenient for family, just because it it, it works for you socially. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, there can be no rivaled love. And notice what Jesus says, not just family, not just brothers and sisters, but what? His own life also. You can't have a self-love before your love of Jesus Christ either. That one kind of, that's the dagger, isn't it? You know, I can, I can be done with family and all that, but Jesus, I kind of was hoping to love myself through this. No, Jesus, no, even, your own, even unto your own life. You've got to love Jesus. He's got to become the paramount love of your life. Second condition of discipleship. Verse 27, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now you have to remember when Jesus said this, he had not yet gone to the cross. So the understanding of Jesus and how he would bear the cross was not yet in full view. But in this culture, crucifixion was a common part of the Roman punishment. So they definitely knew what he was talking about. Even though they had not seen him hang on the cross yet, they knew, oh, wow, that means crucifixion. That means dying. That means death. That means willing to, to pick up death, to carry your cross, to, to, to actually lose your own life, to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's a heavy, I mean, that's a very um, strong word. A complete death to the world, a complete de- and 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 being will having a willingness to be rejected by the world. If you're not willing to pick up that cross, if you're not willing to die to your own life and the world and all the things that you had hoped and all the things that you thought the world would offer you, if you can't put those things to death, you cannot be his disciple. Now, this does not mean that we are not to work or enjoy the blessings that God provides, but these things cannot compete for our loyalty to Christ. A couple verses, James 4 and verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in Him. Jesus Christ, you must pick up your cross and follow me, or you cannot be my disciple. Third, and finally, here tonight in verse 33, we see unreserved surrender. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, you read these and it's almost like, can that really be what he said? Can that really be what he means? I mean, let me read it again. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's no room for covetousness, materialism, greed, in the heart of the disciple. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You're going to be loyal to one or the other. You can't carry them both. You remember the rich young ruler 
who came and Jesus said, go sell it all, all that you have and then come and follow me. And he went away very disappointed because he was very wealthy. Jesus put his finger on what was going on in the young man's heart. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all go out and sell everything we have and give it away and, uh, you know, somehow that will, that's the qualification for becoming a disciple. I think Jesus is very, though, direct, speaking very directly to our hearts and our attitudes. Isn't it possible that the love of things can become a distraction in our following of Jesus Christ? Isn't that what we talked a little bit on Sunday about the, so, the seed that fell on the different types of soil. And there were certain seed that fell amongst the thorns. And it grew grew up with the thorns, but the thorns choked it out. It never bore fruit. And Jesus, in giving that explanation, He said the thorns are the, what? The cares of this life. The deceitfulness of riches. The love of other things. That will choke out the fruit of God's Word working in and through your own life. This is, this is um, very, um, I don't know, challenging to my heart. I hope it is to you as well. God's looking for disciples. Jesus is looking for disciples. And these are the kinds of things that he calls out. Uh, now, it's important to remember that those things that God does allow us to have, that they are entrusted to us as a stewardship. It's not that things are evil, but when we are caught up in those things. Now be careful, you know, we always always like to say that. Oh, money's not bad, it's just the love of money. Good thing I don't love it that much, but boy, I sure do want more of it. Be careful, maybe you do love it. Don't just, you know, slough it off. But uh, it's understanding, I think one of the principles that we have to understand is that God is the one who ultimately owns everything. And whatever does come to our hand, financially, materialistically, that it's been entrusted to you, it's on loan from the Lord. You've become a steward. And if you can understand that, and then, then you know, the, our author said, you know, it's one thing to hold on like this, t- tightly clenched fists. It's another thing to hold things like this. Same things in your hands, but one hand is holding and clinging. One hand is open, Lord. You're free to take it. You're free to disperse it. You're free to direct it. It's yours. You've just entrusted it to me as a steward. And I think that's an important understanding even of this, uh, what Jesus is saying, uh, forsaking all that he has, just recognizing that it's the Lord. And if you think about what Jesus did for us, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus asks nothing of his disciples beyond what he himself has done. Did not Jesus love the Father more than all other loves in his life? Remember, even when his mother and brothers were kind of trying to corral him out of his ministry, he said, no, I must be about my father's business. He was determined to serve out the call of his father. Certainly Jesus bore his cross. And certainly Jesus, though he was rich, he became poor, that we might become rich in spiritual things in him. So 
This call to discipleship is really following Jesus, isn't it? It's really being more and more like Jesus. I like this. Uh, I, I just, I like this. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say this hard word, but I kind of, I kind of like there. Let's uh, just say there's something. I don't know. Maybe it's because we're men. There, there's something in me that likes that. Like, yeah, you know, call to arms. Yeah, I want to be a disciple. You know, I don't want to just be this follower and this, you know, kind of surface skin surface Christian. I want to, I want to go deep with God. You know, and uh, Lord, you know, what do you call me to do? How many of you guys uh, were watching the Super Bowl uh, yesterday? Okay, good. Good turnout. <laughs> I'm going to close with this, and we're going to break into our groups. But uh, how many of you saw that commercial with Paul Harvey's voice saying, God made a farmer? How many of you saw that? Yeah. If you didn't see it, Google it, watch it. It's, it's a commercial for a Dodge pickup truck. And I'm telling you, it was just so, it was so good. I wanted to go out and buy a Dodge pickup truck. <laughs> God made a farmer, you know. And I don't know. I, I think it's because we're some. Yeah, you know, they show the, the the dirty hands and the hard work and the sweat and the and the effort and the, you know, the determination and the commitment and the hanging in there and staying true. And it's all about, you know, that, that you know, if you, the Dodge pickup is good for a guy like that, a guy that wants to work hard and do it right and be honest. It's just, it's really, but it's very, it gives honor to, to God, too, and to the characteristics of godliness. It was really cool. I liked it. And uh, it, there's, there's something about this that kind of connects for me, this call to faithfulness, this call to go the distance, you know, and, and do what you must. Do what, if it's hard, if God calls you to do it, He'll give you the grace to do it. You stay true. You stay the course. You persevere. Don't grow, grow weary in well-doing. Lord, you know, and if we follow in the example and footsteps of those that, that uh, you know, are our heroes of faith, this is, this is the road of discipleship. And uh, I just, I find it very compelling in my own heart. And I think there's something that God has put in the heart of men that that rises up to that, responds to that. You know, we're not looking for shortcuts. We're not looking for easy. I mean, you know, sometimes we we do and we want to. But in truth, I think down in our hearts, and, and especially as the Lord begins to work, there's something in us that wants to be true. And we want to be, you know, valiant about our faith. And we want to be disciples. Of Jesus Christ, I, I I find this just I'm I'm really enjoying this. I'm encouraging you guys to to dig into it, uh, mine it out. It's it's rich. It's it's I think very very timely for us in the culture and time that we're living. God raise up disciples. We need disciples, Lord. We're we're thankful for converts, but we we need those converts to become disciples. Let's pray, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this encouragement, Lord. I'm blessed by this book and how our author has just drawn out some rich truths from passages I know we've read and looked at before. But what a good reminder, Lord, just as men. As men that you've called to live in these last days. As men that you have placed in the earth in such a dark time for such a time as this. Jesus, you're not looking for quantity You're looking for quality. 
And I pray that you would find it in our hearts tonight. God, I pray that you would find it and work it into my heart and into my life by your grace. I cannot be this, Lord, in my own strength. But I'm asking you to work. I want to give you free access into my heart and into my, my life, Lord. I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Become first and foremost. That my love for you would be paramount and rivaled by none. God, that my commitment and devotion to you would be fierce and strong and true. Help us, Lord, as men, to be those men that you're calling us to be, disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. We ask your continued blessing, Lord, on this time and this study. In Jesus' name, amen.